2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 through 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. Everything is from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, And he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. I don't know if any phrase or sentence better sums up the experience of the Apostle Paul. That to be in Christ is to be made a new creation. He who once ravaged the church, who opposed the church in each and every way, a great enemy of the gospel, was converted, transformed into one of the church's greatest advocates. Paul encountered Jesus. And this is what Jesus does when you encounter him. He changes you. You are in Christ. You are a new creation. We see this reality in Paul's life this morning in Acts chapter 9 verses 19 through 31. We see that his conversion is not just a one-time walking of the aisle, not just a meaningless profession of his faith, but a true and genuine conversion wrought by God and it infects every area of his life. The only way to properly describe Paul is new. And if we are in Christ Jesus, that's the only way that you and I can be properly described as well. New. New creations. New creatures. Changed. Transformed. Raised from the dead even. Before we knew the grace of God, we were children of wrath, but it is Christ who has made us alive with God. When you know Jesus, you are made a new creation. And that's kind of the the main idea of the sermon this morning. I want you to walk away thinking that Jesus makes me, Jesus makes us new creatures. And as a consequence of that great conversion, which is the work of God, we live new. The Holy Spirit now equips us to obey God. He empowers us to live lives that please the Lord. I'm going to exhort you this morning to live new, and we're going to work through the passage in three parts. We're going to consider that when we become Christians, we're given a new mission, a new hope, and a new family. Let's pray. We'll think about some context afterwards, and then we'll get into the text. Father, we come before you humbly on this cool, rainy fall morning. Asking that 
you would be our sunshine. Many of us have come weary wearing spiritually wet and soggy clothes. Cold and looking for the warmth that only you can provide. We ask that during this time you would welcome us in. Give us fresh experience of Christ that you would remind us once more to repent of our sins and take off the weariness of our week and put on the robes of the righteousness of Christ. That we would sit next to your word as if it were a fireplace and feel our hearts warmed. Encourage us this morning, God. Lift us up. Remind us of what you've saved us from. Remind us of your great love for us. Oh God, be our hope and stay, our strength and song. Let the melody that you have placed within us ring out in our lives and in this place. God, give us a sense of your presence this morning. We expect you to meet us here as we submit ourselves to your word. We ask that you would continue to change us this morning more and more into the image of Jesus. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. So we've been working through the book of Acts, and we said that the whole book can be summarized as Jesus goes up, the Spirit comes down, and the church goes out. We see Jesus go up in chapter 1. He's the resurrected Jesus. He's teaching the disciples all about the gospel, all about how they're going to bear witness to his life, death, burial, and resurrection in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so he gives them this kind of mini great commission that forms the pattern that the book of Acts will follow. And then he ascends to his throne in heaven where he sits and rules and reigns. And then in chapter two, the Holy Spirit is poured out. And the people of God begin declaring the wonderful works of God. They begin declaring the gospel. And everybody in Jerusalem goes, what does this mean as they hear people speaking in their own language? Are these guys drunk? And Peter's like, no, 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 it's only uh, nine in the morning. They're not drunk, right? I know it's five o'clock somewhere. It's nine o'clock here. They're not drunk. They've been filled with the Spirit of God. This Jesus whom you crucified is both Lord and Messiah. And then Peter shows them how the Old Testament anticipates and culminates in the person and work of Jesus. And the church, in many ways, is born. There is a fellowship of believers forged within Jerusalem as many repent of their sins and put their faith in Christ. Then, from chapters 3 to 7, we see this early church doing the miraculous as well as encountering peril. Persecution breaks out against the church. And at first it's kind of mild, but then by chapter 7 it escalates. As Stephen is put on trial and killed 
And as he lays in a pool of his own blood, he calls out for God to forgive those who would kill him. And Paul is standing there, proving of his death, hearing his prayer. We kind of have like a little foreshadowing that Paul is going to be saved. But at this point, what we see in Acts is the church is persecuting, and despite it's being persecuted, and despite the persecution, despite the obstacles, despite Stephen's death, the church continues to prevail. The word of God continues to spread. The church is suffering, it is scattered, but it continues to speak the word of God. And Jesus' words, all the way back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, are being fulfilled, right? Especially in chapter 8 here, the headline is really that the gospel goes beyond Jerusalem. And we see that it goes into Samaria and Judea. Remember, Philip ministers there. And the apostles come down and the Spirit comes and we see that there's one people of God, that these Samaritans are included in the people of God, that the gospel is for them, that anyone can be saved. Then we see the conversion of the African eunuch. In Africa at the time, we said, in a Roman mind, was the very edges of the earth. And so we see Jesus' words already, the gospel's already gone from Jerusalem and to Judea and to Samaria and now to the ends of the earth. And throughout the rest of the book of Acts, we see the gospel continue to spill out of Jerusalem as Jesus' people bear witness about him in every nook and cranny of the globe. Everywhere they can get to, they're sharing the story of Jesus. And that brings us to Acts chapter 9, where we see Saul, Paul, who Stephen had prayed for, breathing out threats and murder against the church, continuing to bring about destruction within the church. And Jesus confronts him on that road to Damascus, knocks him from his horse. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because that's how closely Jesus identifies with his church. And over a period of a few days and some visions and the prayer of Ananias, Paul comes to know Jesus. And we learn that conversion is the work of God. That no one is beyond the saving grace of God, not even the church's greatest enemy. He, he takes this monster and he makes him a church member. This is where we find Paul. I'm actually going to start in, in verse 17. Paul is still blinded at this point. We read, Ananias went and entered the house, that's Judas's house on Straight Street. He placed his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road you were traveling has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And at once something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. After taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul was with the disciples in Damascus for some time. Immediately, he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. Proclaiming, Jesus is the Son of God. This is a flip of the script. It's a 180 
Paul's message and his mission in life was to search out and destroy Christians. His message was, this Jesus movement is a heresy. It needs to be snuffed out. It's People need to be jettisoned from common society into prisons. We need to put an end to this. And now, all of a sudden, his message is, Jesus is the Son of God. He's the sin-bearing Savior of the world. He's the real and risen King. What causes a man's message and mission in life to change? I mean, his mission is now to make Jesus known. He's a new man with a new message and a new mission. What causes this? This is a radical change. And historians actually often scratch their heads and they try to come up with secular, non-supernatural explanations for this great change in Paul's life. But the best explanation is this, that Paul actually encountered Jesus. That, that, that Jesus really appeared to him on the road to Damascus. That he really was knocked from his horse. That he really was blinded. That Ananias really did come to Judas's house on Straight Street. Really did pray for Paul. That Paul really did, in his blindness, come to see the light that Jesus is the king of the world. That he really did come to believe. The best explanation for Paul's change is that Jesus really is alive. And that Jesus really did change him. Let me ask you a question. Has Jesus really changed you? And I don't mean, do you just show up to church on Sunday morning? I don't mean that you've, you've sprinkled a little religion into your life and now you're, you're a good citizen and you, you do good things. I mean... I don't, I don't mean are you nice because, you know, you have a little religion and some morals. I mean, have you been made new? Has the mission of your life changed? It's a good way to know if, if you're following Jesus faithfully or not. And if the mission of your life is anything other than making much of Christ, walking with Christ, you've got mixed up. Jesus commands us to turn from our sin, to take up a cross, and to follow him. And so I wonder, have we been changed? Or have we just sprinkled a little Jesus into our lives and continued following our own agendas, doing our own thing? Paul is a changed man. It infects everything that he does. Have you been changed? Our mission is the same as, as Paul's was. Church, our mission is to bear witness to Jesus by proclaiming the gospel and making disciples. The church exists to glorify God, to worship God, to edify the saints and evangelize the lost. Does that describe your life at all? If you had a, a personal mission statement, what would, it, what would it be? Would it include Jesus and the church? Or would it be something flowery and weird? You know, just want to, I don't guess it's not weird, but I, I just want to inspire others. I just, just want to live a good life and be remembered. 
Or is it something more akin to what Baxter would say? My ambition in life is to preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Is Jesus the goal of your life? Is making Christ known and exalted and lifted up your highest desire? Or is it something else? What, what, what defines your life? What is your mission? What, what drives you? Paul is changed. He is made new. He's a new creation and he is living new. Jesus now defines him. Not his past, not even his future sin, but his relationship with Jesus is what defines his whole life. We see it on display here. Immediately he's proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All who hear him are astounded and say, isn't this the man in Jerusalem who was causing havoc for those who called on this name? and came here for the purpose of taking them as prisoners to the chief priests. These these people that would have been Saul's friends and colleagues, his allies, they don't even recognize him. Like They're sitting around and they're going, is Saul having a nervous breakdown? This doesn't doesn't make any sense what's happening in his life. For some reason, I think of the old, uh, I think it was 1988 World Series, uh, I remember. He, I just remember the Dodgers. I don't know who they're playing. I'm not a big baseball guy. But there's a, a call, a radio call in the game, and uh, I think it's Kurt Gibson, maybe. Gibson comes up, and he hits a home run, and the announcer says, I don't believe what I just saw. Right? And I think that that's what's going on here. These guys are going, I can't believe what I'm seeing. This guy is supposed to be imprisoning Christians, but instead he's preaching Christ. This doesn't make any sense. Paul has changed. He's got a new message and a new mission. Living out the new life of following Jesus. We read in verse 22, Saul grew stronger and kept confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. And so Saul is now debunking the very arguments that he once made. He's letting them know that Jesus is the one to whom all of the scriptures have pointed. That every passage of scripture whispers the name of Jesus. He's proving to them that Jesus is both Lord and Messiah. And it's reminiscent of Stephen back in chapter 7. Remember, they decide to kill him because they can't withstand his wisdom. They can't out-argue him. And so they say, let's kill him. I think that's the old saying, right? If you can't out-argue them, kill them. If you can't beat them, kill them. Something like that, right? And that's, that's what they do here. Look at verse 23. After many days had passed, the Jews conspired to kill him. But Saul learned of their plot. And so they were watching the gates day and night, intending to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and lowered him in a large basket through an opening in the wall. Saul's conversion really is a bit of a train wreck. He loses everything. Status loses it. His prestige, he loses it. His job, he 
loses it. His 401k, gone. He loses everything. He rode into Jerusalem, or he was, <laughs> he rode into or towards Damascus on a high horse, and now he is exiting Damascus in a basket. Christianity has not resulted in prosperity and blessing for Paul, but hardship. And this, this is only the beginning. We'll refer you back to verse 15. Uh, remember, Ananias, God says, Ananias, you're going to go and you're going to pray for Paul. And Ananias is like, Lord, I don't know if you know Paul or not, but he's trying to kill people like me. And so I don't know if it's a great idea for me to go. And the Lord tells Ananias in verse 15, Go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to the Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. And look at verse 16. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And Paul would suffer. Suffering perhaps best describes Paul's life. He catalogs some of it for us in 2 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 24. Five times I received the 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. I have spent a night and a day in the open sea. On frequent journeys, I faced dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, and dangers among false brothers. Toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold and without clothing, not to mention other things. There is daily the pressure on me, my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation? If boasting is necessary, I will boast about my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows I am not lying. In Damascus, a ruler under King Aretas guarded the city of Damascus in order to arrest me. So I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. Paul suffers over and over and over again. At points, he doesn't have food or clothing. And he finds himself cold and in danger. I think we do a disservice to the gospel when we tell people to follow Jesus because it will make their lives better. Like ultimately, yes, it will make your life better. But sometimes I think we try to sell it like, like we're salesmen. Like it doesn't cost anything. But friends, a, a Christianity that costs nothing is worth nothing. The call is to come and die to yourself. This kind of paradox. The grace of God and salvation are free. Come to God and ask. He will give them to you. But at the same time, following Jesus costs your life. 
It cost Paul his life. If Christianity means having your life shipwrecked, if it means like Paul, perhaps lots of suffering that otherwise would not befall you, why on earth does anyone become a Christian? Two reasons. Because it's true. And because Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. Paul, who wrote that litany of things that he endured for the sake of the gospel, also wrote in Philippians 3, verse 7, but everything that was gained to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that. I consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of Him, I have suffered the loss of all things and considered them as dung so that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God based on faith. Paul says, having a relationship with God by the grace of God through faith in the work of God and the person of Jesus is worth it. Everything else in my life is dung. It's rubbish. It's trash. It's worthless. It's not worth comparing to the joy of knowing Jesus. He is my greatest treasure and he so outshines all these other things. They appear as darkness and dung. I, I, I'm, I would give it up a hundred times, he says. I would suffer a hundred more dangers because knowing Jesus is worth it. He's that good. He is God. And he's my everything. Later in Philippians, he says, I know what it is to have much and to have little. And he eventually gets that line where I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And what he means is I can face anything through Christ who strengthens me because Jesus is the secret to enduring this life, to enduring any kind of suffering because Jesus is the point. Jesus is the purpose. Jesus is the reason for which I exist. Exist for relationship with this God. If I could, could paraphrase Paul in Philippians 4 there, perhaps in the, the words of H.B. Charles, when God is your everything, you can face anything. When God is your everything, you can face anything. Paul says, knowing Jesus is of surpassing value. I'll suffer all, all this loss of all these worldly things. I consider them as dung because I have a greater treasure that is kept in heaven for me, unfading, imperishable. My hope is not in this world which is infected with sin. My hope is a living hope. It's not a cross your fingers and hope kind of hope. It is a real hope that is seated at the right hand of God. His name is Jesus and he never fails. He never falters. He never gives up. And despite all of these ugly circumstances that might surround me, I know that Jesus is utilizing all of them for my good and for his glory. Paul says in Romans 8, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to 
us. He says, there is a redemption coming. There is a glory coming when Christ returns and it makes all of the suffering right now not even worth comparing to it. Glory swallows up suffering. Our God is so good that he will redeem even the worst of evil and even justify it. It's incredible. Paul becomes a Christian and immediately becomes someone who is suffering for Christ. I think wrongly we often view suffering as the consequence of sin, our own sin. Like I did something bad and so God's punishing me. And maybe sometimes consequences of sin show up in in life. But I I think typically this is wrong-headed. Something bad happens to us and we go, oh God, he, he must be angry with me. God, he doesn't, doesn't like me so much this week. I, you know, I listened to that secular radio station on the way to work. <sighs> I watched two football games yesterday. I only read one chapter in my Bible. God's mad. He's punishing me. No. Suffering comes as, as a consequence of evil. God, God allows for it. He redeems it in our lives. But it's foolish of us to think that God loves us any less because we suffer. Just like it would be foolish for one of my children if, if, if something terrible happened to them, to some terrible circumstance in their life, disability, sickness, something, something happened, and they, they came to me and said, Daddy, are you sure you still want to be my father? You know, I've got the sickness, some bad stuff has been going on. Are you sure that you still love me? Like, I'm going to go, you're crazy. Of course I love you. Like, I, I don't love you because you're really good or really well behaved. I don't love you because you're in good health. I love you because you're mine. And this is, this is what you ha- we have to get through our heads. God loves us because we are his. Right? He's not giving you the what for to get back at you, Okay? There's not one iota of condemnation left for any of us who are in Christ Jesus. The only thing God has for you is every spiritual blessing. The only thing God has for you, Christian, is grace upon grace. The only thing God has for you is love and joy that abounds at his right hand. He's not condemning you. He loves you. He's not disowning you as a son or daughter. He is a good father who has adopted you in Christ. Don't you ever forget that God gave his only son so that he could gain you as a son. We are children of God. And he gave up Jesus to a death on the cross for our sin so that he could save us and bring us into his family. He gave up his son so that he wouldn't ever have to lose you and I as sons. So on your worst day, in your suffering, in your hard times, remember God loves you. He cares about you. He desires you. Zephaniah says he sings over you. He rejoices over you like a a mother does her little infant as she rocks them. It's amazing that God cares about (laughs) trash like us. It's a wonder he saves any of us, but he does and he loves us. 
He loves you. Suffering is not a sign of his displeasure. In fact, the opposite can often be true in, in, in our lives as Christians. Suffering often serves to strengthen us. This is how God redeems it. It actually serves us. Paul, Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians right after he goes on that long list of terrible things that have, he's endured. He lists another. He says, I have a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan. And it bothers me. We don't know what the thorn is exactly. We just know that Paul doesn't like it. It's uncomfortable and it's driving him crazy. And he's begging God, God, please take this away. God, please take this away. God, please remove this from my life. And God does not. This is what he writes. Verse 8 of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Concerning this, I pleaded, that's the thorn, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave me. But he said to me, I'm going to paraphrase. He says, no. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, Paul writing now, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. So that I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. See, even when suffering afflicts us and drives us down and crushes us and makes us weak, it's in those moments that the Christian becomes most strong. Because it's in those moments where we press most desperately into the arms of the Father. It's in those moments where we stop living foolishly in a way that's dependent on ourselves and on our own strength, and we start trusting God just with everything, with full abandon. Weakness becomes strength in God's economy. Paul is able to endure all the sufferings, all the circumstances that are going to come his way as a result of his conversion, because his hope is not in this world. See, Jesus has made him a new creation. And he's living in light of a new hope. The day when Jesus returns to make everything sad and true. He's living with his eyes set on glory instead of his current groanings. I wonder, what do you give most of your attention to in your life? Those things which annoy or bother you or the glory that is to come. I've heard the phrase, uh, oh, she's so heavenly minded, she's of no earthly good. Maybe you've heard that one. I actually think the inverse is the problem in the contemporary church. We're so earthly minded, we're no, of no heavenly good. We keep our eyes on Jesus. When we are weak, we are made strong. Paul has a new hope. The irony here is wonderful in chapter 9. He who would enter into Damascus in order to arrest Christians finds himself arrested by Jesus. 
The one who sought to lay his hand on God's people has the hands of God's people laid upon him. He who would be a monster to the church is made a church member. The one who would breathe out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord now has threats and murder breathed out against him. He traveled towards Damascus on a horse. He leaves lowered through a basket, in a basket, through an opening in the wall. Here's the point. Jesus makes the exchange of a horse for a basket entirely worth it. Paul escapes those colleagues of his that would intend to kill him. And he heads towards Jerusalem in verse 26. When he arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him since they did not believe he was a disciple. This fear of theirs is understandable, right? They remember Saul. It's been probably three-ish years. He went to Damascus to arrest Christians, and now he's kind of fallen off the scene. There's been whispers that he might have followed Jesus, but nobody in Jerusalem really believes them. They, they know this guy. They watched him knock on doors and separate husbands from wives. They watched him separate mothers from their children. They watched him wreak havoc in the church. And so they have a hard time believing that he's wreaking havoc in the synagogues now. Their fear is understandable. Unfortunately, it's not justifiable. It's wrong for the early church to treat Paul in this way. He, he tried to join the disciples, but they wouldn't let him. One of my big fears is that we would be like this in any way. That, that someone would come to our doors or our homes wanting to know about Christ or even professing Christ and we would turn them away because, you know, they're one of those people. God couldn't really care for them. They don't belong here. They're not dressed the right way. I hope that never happens here. I mean, the church should be the most welcoming place on earth. We should delight when those who don't know Jesus come here or, or come to our homes. We should look for opportunities to invite them and to bring them in. We want to be great welcomers. We want Saul's to come to know Jesus. We want to believe that the gospel actually works. Church in Jerusalem had its doubts. Verse 27, Barnabas, however, took him and brought him to the apostles. Explained to them how Saul had seen the Lord on the road and that the Lord had talked to him. And how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. I love this. Barnabas took him. It took him here as the sense of like took him under his wing. He, he put his arm around him. And Barnabas goes to the rest of the disciples and he vouches for Paul. He tells them Paul's story and they accept 
fall into their midst. We need more Barnabases. We need more Barnabases in our lives. We need a, a culture of grace in our church. I would, one of my prayers is that we would be a church filled with Barnabases. Constantly looking for ways, Barnabas means son of encouragement, looking for ways to encourage one another, to love others, to, to build up the church. Too often, uh, church cultures feel more like a DMV than a family reunion. Like you've been to the DMV. You, you, you go because you absolutely have to. You can't wait for it to be over. You're surrounded by people that you don't talk to and don't want to talk to. You're like dying to get out of there. And it always feels like it takes forever. I mean, I think that's how many of us approach church. DMV culture. We, we want to seek a culture of grace. We want this to feel more like a fun-filled family reunion than a morning at the DMV. I heard a poem recently that describes, I think, the same sediment, this DMV culture called Good Morning. I'm going to share it with you. It's very short. Good morning. She stands by the church door in a porridge-colored suit, handing out hymn books like bus tickets. I pay on entry. Perhaps she smiled when she opened the door for me, but I couldn't be sure. I go down the unfamiliar aisle and sit among strangers looking at the backs of strangers. We're all on the same bus, traveling the same road. Our leathery handbag may be packed with 60 years of love and joy and pain, but I'll never know. Instead, we'll pass again at the door and say, good morning. See the point here? As we can treat church like the DMV or church sorry, the DMV, and we can come in here and just say good morning and just go through motions and then leave. And if we've done that, we've missed the point of our gathering together. The church is to be a place where we actually know each other's love and joy and pains. Brothers and sisters, resolve to not leave here and enter here with nothing more than empty pleasantries like good morning. In fact, resolve to know each other outside of here. Pray together. Eat together. Share life together. This is what God has called us to. To be a community of believers with a culture of grace be like Barnabas and put your arm around one another. Make sure that we are connected. We are, after all, the body of Christ. And too often, because of our own selfish desires and passions, we live as if the body of Christ is dismembered and dispersed into a million different places. Now we must live together as one body united in Jesus. Barnabas brings Saul in. He speaks boldly of Jesus. And that pattern of Paul's life comes into the fore. Look at verse 28. 
Saul was coming and going with them in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of Jesus. He conversed and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers found out, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the pattern of Paul's life is clear. He's, he preaches Jesus boldly. People get mad and try to kill him. He goes somewhere else and preaches Jesus boldly. Repeat, right? Happens to Paul a lot. And here, the new family that he belongs to goes from hiding from him to helping him hide from those who would want to kill him. And they do hide. He goes off to Tarsus. He has a ministry. But he's going to disappear from the scene in Acts for about 11-ish years. Lots of time is passing. But this is what we read as they send Paul off to make sure he's safe. Verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It increased in numbers. What we see is throughout all the book of Acts, the church is persecuting and yet prevailing. It's scattered and it continues to speak. And now we see that despite some of the suffering that has occurred, some of the suffering that has befalled Paul and the suffering that will occur in the future, that God is still about the work of strengthening his church. The church has peace amidst the pain. It is strengthened. And God continues to cause his church to grow. Jesus continues building his church. And Saul, who was once the occasion of great fear in the church, is now someone that causes the church to be strengthened. In uh, Galatians, after sharing his testimony, there's a wonderful line. He says, and they glorified God because of me. And the church is giving glory to God because of the conversion of Paul. One of the wonderful things he shows us is that our past sins do not define us. Our future sins will not define us. What defines us is our relationship with the one who has conquered sin. What defines us is our relationship with Jesus. What defines us is whether or not we have been made new creations in Christ. Church, Jesus has made you new. We must live new. Non-Christian, if you're here, I want you to know anybody can get in on this deal. It's, it's the beauty of the gospel. Is that even monsters like Paul can be made members of God's family when they meet Jesus and give everything they have to him. He'll give you a new heart. Jesus can save anybody. He can make anybody a new creature. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for all the many blessings you've given to us. Thank you for this gathering. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for giving us lights that stay on, coats on our backs, food in our stomachs. Most importantly, thank you for your spirit in our hearts. Thank you for Jesus. 
who is alive. Whose life means that we too shall live. We thank you that our hope is not a dead hope, but a living hope. Thank you that Jesus is going to come and make all things new. Thank you that he started with us. Help us to live like it. That's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.